Welcome back to another episode of Everything Aviation Podcast. Uh, today's guest, I, I know quite quite well. Um, he was former chairman of the National Michael Association of Ireland for 10 years, uh, former president of the National Aero Club of Ireland, the club chief instructor of the Irish Parachute Club, uh, fixed wing and flex wing pilot, and a winner of the Paul de Sandier Diploma. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this person has put up with me for 20, nearly 26 years of my life. It is my very own dad. Dad, how are we? How are you, Mikey? I have to ask, or as I should say uh, to everyone who, who's listening at home, you're not known as dad, it is, it's Paul, but it's dad to me. Um, where has your interest in aviation come from? Well, you see, I thought you were going to ask that. Because that that's the most horrible question, and I'll tell you why. It's a horrible question because it just leads to a big string of cliches, and I don't really like cliches. Oh yes, I once saw a swallow in the sky and thought I'd love to be a swallow. And there's all that sort of stuff goes on, and that's not me. I'm just fascinated by aviation. The first recollection I have is um, we used to have a mobile home down in Town in Wexford, and I, I remember, and always sitting be on the way home and not on the way down, but I'd be sitting in the front seat of my dad's car, always wondering as we're driving along the road, I'd look at him wouldn't it be great if you could just pull the steering wheel back a little bit? Just float on up, imagine the views. That's probably my earliest recollection. I was always I was always into it, but I was always put off. And 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 that's a bit of advice that I give to people. Don't be put off it because of what somebody tells you. Every no one will tell you the good things. Everyone will tell you, oh, this is gonna cost you so much. This is gonna be hard work. You'll have to go to university, you'll have to do this. No, you don't. You got a dream. Follow your dream. So I eventually actually got into aviation by doing a sponsored parachute jump in 1988. Oh, wow. Okay, so that, that's a different side of aviation to, to what most people would be used to. Uh, yeah, but for me it was free because it was a sponsored parachute jump. Okay. And that was really, that was really why I went down that route because everyone else told me, oh, no, you need lots of money and you need to do this and you need to do that. I never had any money. I'd only just, I moved to England in 1984. I was there until 93. Um, and I was in, a, I was in a, a little flat on my own. And I, it was just the whole, the, it, it wasn't cost prohibitive. It was the thought of it being cost prohibitive because of what everybody was telling me. So I thought, well, I can still fly if I go and do this parachute jump. Um, but I remember doing the parachute jump and sitting in this little session at 206, there was no door. I remember sitting in it and I was so terrified that to this day, I, well, at first of all, I thought, well, I'm sitting in the plane. If by some miracle I ever survived this, it's never happening again. I'm just not going to do it again. That's, but I got so terrified that I don't know if you'd call it uh, a mental block or whatever. But to this day, I remember being in that aeroplane and I remember the parachute being open. They were the old ground parachutes at the time. I remember the parachute being open and that was all lovely. I've no recollection of ever getting out of the aeroplane. None. Except I have seen the photograph. <laughs> wow. But like, we, we, let, let's stick to the, to the parachuting for a moment because you, you've gone on to be a, a, a tandem master, a tandem instructor. You've got on to be club chief instructor and, and, a, and a coach, and you are the um, or you you were the parachute association of Ireland uh, training officer as well. So, how does someone who's terrified and doesn't even remember getting out of the airplane go from from being terrified and not remember getting out of the airplane to doing all that? 
for the same reason I did everything else in my life. Pure stupidity. <laughs> absolute, absolute stupidity. And, 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 and well, well, I suppose some people call it perseverance, but for perseverance, see stupidity. Um, I got such a buzz from it, and there were the old parachutes, and it was in August of 1988. Uh, I was 22 years old. And I remember there was, we, we were jumping from Goodwood, and in Goodwood, Goodwood was a busy airfield, so we weren't allowed to land on the airfield. So the club had some deal with a farmer for a hundred square, a hundred meter square on his land out in was it Lavender, Havend, anywhere somewhere near Goodwood. We used to get a minibus back, we landed on this square. And, and there was rape fields and stuff all over the place. And the, the, the place was stunning, it was fabulous. And on the round parachutes, it's so quiet. And I'm talking deadly quiet. But you get these smells, there's no sounds. And you get different smells at different levels. And the whole thing was a rush. It was a big rush. Um, one, one, I wanted a little bit more of that, but I wanted to try and avoid the whole fear factor that was never going to happen. Um, but the main thing was... I wasn't going to be beaten. And I have this thing in my life that I'm not going to be beaten. And I don't do it in a bullish manner. So I'm not going to be beaten. I'll just keep getting up. I'm not stupid. If I need to keep stay lying down, I'll stay lying down. Do you know what I mean? I won't get into a battle. I won't, I'll, I'll have a good, careful consideration of a battle before I'll take it on. I want to know of some chance of winning it. Um, but with this, I didn't want my memories of my lifetime dream to come flying to end with where one, all I could remember was fair, and two, I couldn't remember the parachute jump. To this day, I still don't remember getting out of the airplane. And I wasn't going to leave it there. So I had to force myself, and it, and, and it was. And the whole fear and the worry is completely irrational. Because up to the time I'd done about maybe 30, 40 jumps, I'd be terrified on a Wednesday waiting for Saturday to come along. I used to drive down from London down to Woodward now. Uh, and then it'd come to Friday. Friday, I'd be doing a little rain dance around the flat and praying that the weather was bad so I didn't have to do it. But I was never, ever going to say, no, I'm not going. But I would have liked some divine intervention in the form of rain or high winds, which I, I, that particular summer just didn't happen. It was a fabulous summer. And then, and then by Saturday morning, I'd actually feel physically sick. And then I'd go off and I'd do another jump. And then I would come out absolutely buzzing again, ready for the next one until the following Wednesday came along. And it was a, and it was a pattern and a follow. Now it does go away, but it was a pattern and a follow that pattern. But what I did learn, which was a great thing, it stood me greatly for everything else in my life is, I learned the hard way, and I'll tell you how the hard way was in a minute. But I learned the hard way um, to separate fear and panic. People don't do that. People say, I'm shitting myself. No, you're panicking. And they're two completely different things. And when you utilize fear, it becomes your best friend. Because think about it, you don't get complacent when you're, when you're fearful of something. In fact, it's on your mind, so you're thinking about it. So if I'm if I'm afraid of maybe say having a parachute malfunction, my malfunction drills are first and foremost in my head. And you, I also developed through this fear. Um, 
I developed the thing was that not what would I do if this happened, but what am I going to do when this happens? Mm. So for every single jump, when the parachute opened, what a surprise. That was fantastic. And a nice, pleasant surprise. Because I was expecting it not to open. Not in a bad way, but expecting them not to open so that I was always sharp in being able to deal with what would happen in the aftermath. And that's good me. That's good me one step. Panic is a fight or flight type of thing. It's get me somewhere safe. You cannot think when you panic. So to be able to, most people can't distinguish between the two, but, but to be able to separate the two, um, uh, it was quite difficult thing to do and took a lot of time and took a lot of hard work. And, and you really are fighting with your brain because your brain's telling you, no, this isn't right. So you're fighting with it. It's a bit like breaking a habit. But but to be able to do that stood me a great step for everything else I've done. Me. And it meant that I could be terrified of something and still be quite good at it. That's where we ended up. But there's a bit of a story to that. That's where we ended up. And it's, it's true as well. I, I find it with flying and stuff like that as well. Is that if, if you have that bit of fear there afterwards, like you said, you get this buzz and a rush afterwards. Yeah. Because see, it's a pressure cooker effect. Let's just go back to skydiving for a minute. When I take tandem passengers, the first thing you're told is a tandem passenger is going to do every single thing in their power to kill it. That's what they are. The tandem passenger was your assassin. They are going to do everything. <laughs> they are. They are, they're out to get you. The only thing they haven't done as from, from the assassin's part of the job is they haven't stalked you for a few weeks first to find out all about you. But that's the only difference. But they are because you have to be able to put anything they do wrong. You have to be able to put it right. And of course they're going to do things wrong because this is completely alien to them. You're taking up the 13, 14 thousand feet, you're playing yourself in an airplane. And it's not a natural thing. But... This is what I used to tell them. Um, this isn't about tandems. It's about it's about the effect, the adrenaline effect that you're talking about. Um, we're we're animals, and, and by being animals, we have this instinct for self-preservation. Mm. Self-preservation, self-preservation is what we want. We'll do it. We'll even if there's a shark chasing us, we'll slash children and throw them behind us to you know to save ourselves. Self-preservation. <laughs> self-preservation is where we're at. And when the door of an airplane opens, every nerve and every sinew in your body is saying words I can't say on this because it's public, but it says, don't do this. Everything is saying, don't do this. And you go and do it anyway. And you carry that fear and you carry that pressure. Even after the parachute opens, you still have it. Because once the parachute opens, we have no option for a go-round. So we have to, um, uh, what's the word? We have to establish what the conditions are like. All in a short period of time, we have to establish our descent rate. We have to establish our forward speed. And because we only have one option or one chance of getting back to where we want to be at any given time. So that meant that we have to be in a certain place. And But that's, that's a whole other thing. But you're carrying all this pressure with you all the time. Now, for the likes of a tandem passenger are in the early days when you jump, but when you touch the ground and you're safe, then it's, wow, because all of a sudden, this pressure and this fear releases. I'm safe, I'm here, I'm safe. As you go further on into parachuting, say going into a very tight display jump, I've done quite a few very tight display jumps, one of the 
one of the tightest was into the American ambassador's residence in 2012. There's high trees all around it. There's a mini white house up one end. So you have to get in. It's when you make that final turn and you know you're in. That's it. Happy days. Bang. Did it. Up, up to then, it's all pressure. But I seem to... I didn't enjoy the pressure beforehand. A, a bit like waiting to win some doctors. But I always enjoyed the pressure when I say I'm going to be motorbike road racing and I'm road racing the bike on, on tight, narrow lanes at over 100 miles an hour. It's, you don't enjoy waiting to do it, but you really enjoy doing it. And what, yeah. I, what I realized is, is that the, if you do come to a point where, because I think it's a bit arrogant to say, yeah, hey, well, I was very close to death today. I got five deaths. And that's, there's a certain arrogance established. I won't say that. It's, it's, it's when your own perception is that you were at that stage where you were close to death, where anything could have happened. Um, when you sit back and think about it, you think, I think I was a bit of a fool there doing that. You're still going to do it again. The reason you go and do it again is because at that particular point, if that's the most alive you'll ever feel in your life. Mm. Being an inch away from death is the most alive you will ever feel. And, and I, I, I suppose it takes a certain type of individual to keep wanting more of that. But the pressure in the build-up is never nice. Yeah. But the pressure while you're doing it, yeah, 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 live with that. And you live with that because you know in, in a race, I'm maybe 15, 20 minutes away from finishing and saying, and on the parachute jump, I'm two and a half minutes. So the pressure while you're doing it, you're waiting for the end result. And that end result is, is uh, it's like blowing the top off, the lid off a pressure cup. It's like Fantastic. Will Smith. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Will, Will Smith talking about his, his tandem that he did. And um he was saying that he was losing sleep the night before and he kept waking up. And he's like, oh, no, do we have to do this? And he's hoping everyone was messing. And he gets down to the lobby of the hotel the next morning and everyone's there. And he's all right, they yeah. weren't messing. We're going to have to do it. So he goes and he does it the whole way up. He's absolutely crapping and bricking it. And he said that as you get to the door, you're looking out and there's just this massive drop. And he said, as you just step out the door, he said, the point of maximum danger is just bliss he said the fear is gone he said what can you do you can't get back in the airplane so you're, you're out and just yeah. enjoy it well you see when you talk to people and i was the same when i became an instructor i started asking people what are you afraid of you're afraid the person going down and they say no 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 you're afraid the plane's going to crash no 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 what are you afraid of people can't answer that question they don't know yeah. they're just afraid they don't yeah. actually know what they're afraid of but it was brilliant but you do get used to it you do get used to it um, and it, it's there's an old saying, knowledge dispels fear. And, it, and it's a fact. The more you understand about something, the less fearful of it you are. So you do you do get to a stage quite quickly as well where you realize that this, this is safe, it's a safe sport. Um, and when you get to that point, then you start to spread your wings a bit to try and find the adrenaline again. I became a cameraman, freefall cameraman. Um, and I did that to give me something else to worry about. In other words, when I was in freefall, I wasn't worried about freefall anymore. In fact, I really, really enjoyed freefall. So now I have to put myself under pressure in another way. So somebody was paying me to take pictures. So I had to be able to fly my body to the extent that I could take the pictures that they wanted. I had to be in the right place at the right time to freefall. So that, that led to another quite big challenge. 
and then and then you, you just go from there. The reason I became an instructor was because some people, and there was loads of them, because I was jealous of them for years in skydiving, but they're in all walks of life where people just seem to breeze through. Now, obviously, I'm not saying they did breeze through. Nobody knows what goes on inside someone else's head, but, but they appeared to breeze through. That was my perception of it. And they didn't have much failure. I yeah. was a failure. I was the biggest failure known to the skydiving community. I was huge failure. Dummy ripcord pulls. You were supposed to do three, and then you were ready for free fall. I did seventy-five, and they gave me my own dummy ripcord. You know, <laughs> I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seventy-five of them, and all the people that I did my first jump course with, they were all out doing four ways and this lay jumps. Yeah, yes, come on, we all go to France. Sorry. Anyway, because um, I wasn't going on these trips because I was a student jumper. And then I ended up getting banned from Freefall for life. Mike McLaughlin was the CCI and the Flying Tigers at the time. And there was Ken, Ken, I can't think of his saw now. He was it. There were, we had three instructors who were ex British military, really, really nice. He'd put me out, and what I'd done was, was instead of maintaining a good, stable, large body position, I tumbled, and I tumbled for about maybe eight seconds, maybe nine seconds. Ended up pulling the ripcord um, while I was on my back. The pilot tube came up between my legs, and a set of lines wrapped around my leg, and the parachute decided it wasn't going on, it was in a stream. So then I was in a predicament because I couldn't put the main parachute away which is what would be normal procedure because I still had an attachment to my leg. So I had to get it off my leg first and then cut it away and then get the reserve out. And then um, I crashed into the side of a, a chalky hill uh, around about 500 feet. I thought that ground looks close to 500 feet, but I didn't realize it was top of the hill. Um, and that day, and it was devastating for me. And it was devastating for me because of... What it had taken for me to keep doing it after the first one, it wasn't easy. Um, but at the same time, I didn't appreciate at the time um, the, the instructors, and in particular the chief instructors, uh, his mentality or his, um, uh, what he saw didn't look something's going to happen to this one. I didn't appreciate he was trying to protect me from myself. Mm. But on that particular day, I went back out to Ken. Oh, what is he saying? And I went back out to Ken. And he says to me, arch for me. And I threw my shoulders back and I thought I looked like the coolest thing ever. And he said, no, now arch for me. And he put his hands on my shoulders and he says, because normally the arch, I'd start falling backwards, as a lot of people do. And he says to me, look, that's not an arch. And he stood in front of his hand on my shoulders. He said, now push your hips forward. Do nothing else, just push your hips forward. And all of a sudden, I fell forward. There you go. And from that day on, I I was still allowed, very luckily, I was still allowed to jump on the static line because I never had a problem on the static line. And it was at that point, that very point, where, where I learned to distinguish between fear and panic. Because what I was doing was panicking, and that was going to kill me. But carrying the fear with me was going to keep me safe. And I only started to realize that. So I started practicing this art and I went back and I did another few, uh, I did another few static lines. 
And then I went into the CCI uh, one day, I just sitting there and I said to him, I want to go free fall. And he said, all right, when? I said, what? And now I didn't want to go anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> I said, what? He said, when do you want to go? I said, uh, so I wasn't really, I wasn't expecting that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He, yeah. Said, um, he said, look, it's quite simple. We've seen what you're doing. What you're doing is good. Um, we've, we'll give you another go. We'll give you another go. Free fall, go this afternoon. And that was a horrible thing. I just wanted to go home. But anyway, because I thought, oh, geez, what's going to happen now? Because it was my first time going free fall since the incident with the reserve and the streamer and all. So I said, I'll go this afternoon. Because if it didn't, I wasn't going to. Yeah. I went home for a week. I wasn't coming back. Right. So I went and I did uh, did a five second delay and it was absolutely the jump masters are running. It was timed at four point nine seconds or something. I was looking back in the airplane at everybody airplane flying away, and it just went really really well. And I never looked back after that. But at that stage, I'd done hundred odd jumps. Hmm. That's that's mad because growing up in the Irish Parish Club now with yourself and everything, seeing people with a hundred odd jumps, they're looking at getting into to teams and stuff like that, and you you've only just gone free fall. Yeah, but to go back to what I was saying, the, these other people were flying by, and I was jealous of. Them. They were finding it easy, and then when I decided to become an instructor, what I actually discovered was all of my so-called perceived failures were actually lessons. Because I actually made it to being a very, a very good instructor, but because I could draw on those experiences and I could understand, fully understand, what these people were thinking and what was going through their mind. Because it went through mine. If they had a problem, say a stability problem or whatever it was, I could understand that because I'd been there and done that. And that's what I found a lot of instructors who were probably fantastic skydivers. But if they didn't have the issues, they didn't necessarily understand the issues or didn't understand a, the, a, a simple way to deal with them or to help the students. So I did find that all of those things that happened really stood me in good stead. Everything bad that's ever happened in my life has turned out to be very, very good. Yeah. Everything. Amazing. And just just touching because you said something interesting. You said the tandem passengers are, are basically an assassin, uh, and you, you're you're told. Yeah, yeah. So what 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 does training for a tandem master look like? Oh, five hundred jumps minimum to start with. A recommendation from a club chief instructor, and then you go into a tandem course where the first so the first hour and a half we were watching videos of fatalities. Actual fatalities. Now, obviously, we didn't see the didn't see the very end bit. Being, and, and and then we had to, to analyze what had caused these and how we might avoid them. And uh, once we'd done that, when it then consisted of ten jumps, and those ten jumps, the first one was solo on your own with with the gear, which meant you stay up there for oh, about a week and a half the size of that thing on your own. You know, that part of you. But but you did one. We did one on your own so that you could get used to the drogue. And then there was nine then with passengers. Those passengers are experienced skydivers. They're briefed. And they are briefed to become the assassins. So the, the tandem examiner will pull them aside and he'll brief them to absolutely completely get it wrong. 
to tuck up in a ball or to stick a leg out or to try and roll it over or just to prevent, just just to put me in a position that I can't recover from. In which case, because they were, if, if they were capable of doing that, there's no way I was getting on to the next stage. There was no way you were ever going to be a tunnel master. Um, but if they were able to do that, because they're experienced skydivers, they're also able to once, once, because I'm trying to arch over or whatever I'm trying to do, and they'll be doing the same and the whole thing will come back. So, so the, the risk was still there, but the risk was, was minimal with those skydivers. And then after the 10 jumps, um, after the 10 jumps, if I can't put right what they put wrong, I'm not going to be a tandem master, neither is anybody else. Um, but after those 10 jumps, then you're signed off to take out your first life passengers. Because they will, they'll just, they'll panic, they'll roll up on a ball, they'll stick a leg out, they'll stick an arm out, they'll try and grab at your hands, which is not a very good thing. <laughs> Suddenly grab your hands, especially if you might just need it to save their life in a um, so, so you have all that going on and it's just really interesting I remember you saying uh, well this is touching on two of the points you said actually um, about having no recollection of, of yourself jumping out of the airplane I remember when me and you did a, did a skydive and apparently you said I kicked uh, for a good thousand feet and I have no recollection yeah. of that at all um, so, so that just that proves two of your points there as well about uh, that, that kind of separating fear from panic um, yeah, so you've, also, you see, you've, you've got to teach people to develop an awareness for their whole body because we don't have an awareness for our whole body you think of it when you rely on, on your whole body because in skydiving when you want to adjust your position or you want to do something it's done by air deflection. So your arms and your legs and your chest, and your, your body's your control source. Um, so you have to be aware of what everything's doing. But under normal circumstances, we're not, because that there is mm. the center of your universe. And you don't often think beyond that. Everything else is automatic. You walk, you move your legs, but the center of your universe is there. And when you're under that sort of pressure and that sort of panic, last place you're going to think is where your big toe happens to be in any given time. So you do have to you do have to develop this awareness. And video actually turned into a fantastic training tool for doing that. Showing people, well, it's great. It's great for yeah, you know, def definitely seems it. But I remember you saying to me as well. You're saying like you're not you're not aware of your, what your body's doing. And uh, I remember in the kitchen one day you got me to try and think about walking, and I couldn't I couldn't walk because I was thinking about it. No, you won't. And do you know when else that happens? If you're on your own walking down the street, there's a packed bus stop on the other side of the road. As you're walking by the bus stop, you can't do it. Because you just know. You know everyone's standing there for 10 minutes and they've had nothing to look at except you walking by. Try it one day. The walk starts getting a bit. Funny, you're starting to get very, very conscious across the street at you. You don't, you don't. And in anything in life that where, where you require all of your body to, to, to act maybe as a control surface so you need it in order to achieve something. You've got to be aware of where of where every part of your body is and what it's doing. And then once all this, you've done your tandem rating and all that, at what point did you start looking at getting uh, chief instructor rated? Oh, was chief instructor rated before I did tandem rating. All right, okay, I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was jump master rated in 1988, I think. Um, 2000, 2000, I did my instructor rating. I think I did my senior instructor rating in 
2002, maybe 2003, 2004, I was the senior instructor. Um, and then, and then I was a 2000, I was, no, I was senior instructor in 2002, I think. Chief instructor in 2004. The chief instructor rated, but that didn't make me the, the chief instructor. I eventually got the position of chief instructor um, in 2010, August 2010. The, the, the vacancy came up and it was offered to me, which was an absolute privilege because it's the oldest sport parachute club in the world. And there had only been a handful of chief instructors ever in its history. So, so to me, it was a seriously prestigious post. Yeah. So I was well happy with it, well happy with it. Loved it. Brilliant. So how, I still how wanted to fly, you see. I still wanted to fly, because this is, this is where the initial, we're still answering your initial question. Well, this, this, um, this is where I was coming back to, like, how do you, because I, I know what you're going to say here, that where did you, you, you wanted to fly, but surely flying your body is the most raw form of flying you can get. So how did you now start to look at powered flight? Because I wanted to stay up there a little bit longer. Okay. I wanted to be able to, to, to go. I wanted to venture. I wanted to be able to go. I wanted to fly. Although I was flying my body, and it is probably the purest form of flight, and, and I was flying a parachute, and, and with all the skills that are inherent in that, it, I wasn't... I was flying, I wanted to fly an airplane, I wanted to fly. It was just that I still wanted to pull the steering wheel back in my dad's car going down the road. That's and skydiving didn't skydiving just it was brilliant, but I wasn't flying. Mm. So I always I still wanted to fly. Now I, I ended up getting my uh, I got a micro, I was down in Sidewell at this I didn't meet this chap, he had it advertised. Uh, 19... 1999, I think it was. Yeah, 99. And it just happened to be in Soywell. That's where I met Paul first. Absolute gentleman. Turned into great buddies on the on the circuit, on the European, because I was uh, Irish delegate on the European Microwave Federation. Um, and I met Paul, and I bought this little XL trike. And um, somebody told me, Jerry Snodden could teach me to fly, so... I trailered it off up to all off up to New Cards, up to Jerry Snodden, and I learned to fly in that. And I got my wings though. Yeah, in Stormont they had a main arts main arts Sinclair pavilion. They used to give you little gold wings. They had a wings night, and you got a little bit of dinner and all that. It was, it was just good fun. It was great. But I actually got the fly, and I got to fly where I could afford it. And I wasn't waiting for an airplane for three months down in some four mile long runway club thing. It was. It was grassroots and it was fun and it was adventurous at that time. It was it was just before the big boom where nine months where we went to four hundred and fifty kilos from three ninety or whatever it had to be. I think it was three ninety, went to four fifty and allowed the nine one two to come in. And and that kind of didn't get rid of the adventure, but you had to go further to get one. Yeah. We 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 could go to leash with our little two strokes and our little lunchbox with sandwiches. And we could we could take off and we could fly to Tullamore. And this is a whole day out. This is could even be an overnighter for the weekend. And we go from, from where Lime Tree is now unleashed to, to Tullamore because someone would have a barbecue on and there'd be three or four of us. And that was I don't know how many miles it would be. But you'd do it in about 45 minutes in a car. 
or thereabouts. It wouldn't be an hour anyway, right? About 45 minutes in the car. And we'd spend the day at it and we'd buzz about. And sometimes you mightn't make it. Sometimes something happened and you'd have to land out in the field and give someone a ring to come and get you in a trailer. But you only went that far. And I'd liken it a little bit to the couple of days myself and Lisa spent on a boat in, on the Shannon, where there was a fella, a lock keeper, <laughs> and he'd open up the lock for them. Thank you very much, you know, on the boat, feeling like Captain Paul. And then we go down to the next lock, and the same lock keeper be waiting for us. And I'd say, no, how did he get here before us? But the fact of the matter was, when we looked at our route over two days, we could have covered the whole lot in two hours in the car. <laughs> well, do you know what I mean? And yeah. But the world, the world just moves at, at a different pace, and it was like that with the micro. Yeah, it was, it was great fun. It was, it was adventurous. First time across the Irish Sea, wow, was that adventurous? We landed on Eddie Redmond's place in, in Kilmuckridge, Wexford, and we put on a big rubber suit and we ran Shannon and we filed a flight plan. And next thing, we were taking off and we were heading across the sea, and that was. Pure adventure. And then a friend of mine said to me years later, he said, do you want to go to pop them? I said, yeah, I'd love to go to pop them. Right, he says, now, because we plan. We were going to Eddie Redmond's. We'd have to map silk the pencils. We'll be doing much with them, but we'd have to map silk the pencils. And we were proper, we were proper adventurers. We may as well be climbing Everest. And, uh, and we planned for weeks. And then he rang me and he says, do you want to go to pop me a Sky Ranger? Just trying to go pop them. And I said, yeah, yeah. And the planning consisted of, I'll meet you at four o'clock in the top of and I hop, And I hopped in the Sky Ranger. And halfway across the sea, I was opening these maps of fun. He's trying to get me out of the way. You know, he's giving me <laughs> He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm folding the map. He said, what are you, why are you folding the map? I said, because I can. You couldn't do that on the flex, man. You had to cut your map into little bits and put it on a keyboard. I have to laugh here now because the only time I ever actually look at a folded map nowadays is, is when I'm, I have to in a competition. Otherwise, it's all on my phone on Sky Demon these days. Yeah, yeah but no, but this it, it was it, what I found was the adventure was gone in in the sense that it was far too civilized. <laughs> oh, we had a heater. And then the next thing we were gone, we landed in Haverford West. Haverford West Cafe was closed. It was late afternoon. And we were heading on the top. So he says, right, come on, we'll keep going. I was starving, right? It's tea time now, half five or something in Haverford West. And as we're heading over the Welsh Mountains, he pulls out a big flask of tea and, and some rolls. He said, do you want a cup of tea? <laughs> that was alien to me. I'm going, I'm going oh, yes. Look, there's the world down by there. Fantastic. So it was very, it was very civilized, and in a little way, because I'm in the motorbike, so I'm like, I don't know my car and all this sort of stuff. Um, it was the difference between a motorbike and a car. It was remarkably civilized. Fly there and back. We got up Sunday morning. We took off and we flew home. Whereas if that was in the flexions, right now, on the secret, we get twenty miles. We have to put down in a field, pick a good one. You know, it was all this. It was, it was bravado. There was this. There was this. Um, and testosterone style manliness that went with it. We're going, we're going to fly our flight But it was great, and I still love the flight wings. I did eventually, I did the, the conversion of Rachel McCarroll onto the three axis, and I loved the three axis. Mm. And I still do love the three axis. 
but I still have a, a burning desire for flight. Yeah, but because it's, it's, it's about the bike and car. You, you were saying um, uh, like you, you upgraded the, the flex wing before that, though, didn't you? Like to the 912. Did that take any adventure away from it, or was, or was that just the same, just with bigger and more powerful uh, power plant? Um, no, it didn't take any adventure away. This is what I was saying earlier. Um, rather than take adventure away, you had to travel further to get the adventure. <laughs> no, but the 912 would get to turn more quicker than the car would. <laughs> which was there's no adventure in that <laughs> but it's, it's it's been in the air I thought every time you'd be in the air is an adventure that's the way I look at it anyway uh, yes and no yes and no it'd be like uh, it'd be like you getting into your car and driving over a mountain off road would be an adventure and then driving home along the motorway would still be part of it but wouldn't quite be the so yeah, we, yeah. Yeah, the adventure was still there. So then we needed a bigger adventure. So then we ended up going to Scotland. Then we ended up in France. We didn't even know where we were going. There's a good friend of mine, God rest me, he's gone now, went to the van. And himself and then the Spain, he rang me one day and I had the 912 Raven. And he rang me and he said, If you've got a few days off, I said, Yeah, I have a few days off. Right, he says, Load it up. And I'm coming up. He flew up from Kerry. I'm coming up. So I got to Saturday. We know a day where we were going. We were just going somewhere. So on Saturday morning, then he turns up Friday night. Saturday morning, pulled it out. It was blown like that. It was blustery. It was horrible. I remember. Uh, I said, I said to him, where, where are we going? To come, we go to Newton Arts. Now nothing was flying in Newton Arts. Helicopters weren't even flying in Newton Arts. We got. Well, we flew through the valley there at Newry, the Morn Mountains. And we were getting battered to the point I just wanted to be out of this thing. And I was close to tears. I was genuinely close to tears. And, oh, I what's going on. Um, and we put it down in Newton Arts. I said, I'm going no further. And we put them in the hangers. And we woke up the next morning. It was just as bad. Poor old Mike says, where are we going? I said, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> said, bad. And I said, I've got a tailwind. I'm going home. And he says, no, 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 you're not going home. He says, we're going somewhere. He says, ring your mate in Yorkshire. And I rang John Moore. And John Moore said, and now I found out about, about poor old John years later, that John would have told me he had four miles an hour winds, no matter what was going on. Winds about four miles an hour. <laughs> and it was, it was blowing a gale. So he says, I, I rang him and he says, yeah, yeah. And he had his own strip. So I says, right, we're going to Yorkshire. So we flew to Carlisle first, um, 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 trying to think of the name of this trip. I hate my name's well in my head, just out of Carlisle. Flew over there along the Scottish coast, and it was it was fantastic. We kind of crossed the sea. That was our adventure. And then we took off from, it'll come, the name will come back to me. But we took off from there. Was it Kirkbride? Kirkbride, that's it. We took off, we met, right? we know fuel, we need fuel, right? And at the time, there was a big, there was a hotel thing up in the, up in the car park. You could taxi into the car park, just park. And there was a hotel, and there was a tenner for a three-course meal. Oh, but wow. Normally when I'm flying, I don't eat much. It's only just a feeling, I just don't feel hungry. But then when I finished in the evening, I'm starving. So we, we got this meal, and we got back in, and we took off, and it was one of the best flights I've ever had. We were climbing a constant 250 feet up over the Pennines. 
And and it, like you're aware of the curb, but the curb's like with the sheep and the, the grass. It was just open yeah. land, and we just followed the road, and we just we don't we ended up in Barnard Castle, where we went out for a few pints. Then so on. And now now it's adventure. That's in your eyesight, right? And then the, the following day, the Monday. I see. We want. We ultimately at this stage wanted to end up with Spamfield on the on on the Friday. So on Monday we woke up and says to Mike, John Morris says, this he says, it's about eleven o'clock because we live in the warehouse, you know. About eleven o'clock, he says, you better be going somewhere. You better, you better be going, you know. So he said, right, where we go? Mike, as usual, got the map on the old little He says. Uh, why don't we go to London? I said, geez, London sounds great, right? We'll go to London. I says, I know a fella in London, Colney, so we live somewhere to put down. Um, so he says, right, we'll go there. So we flew down. Um, we got down as far as Melton Mowbray. And I think Mike, Mike Arenda needed fuel or something. So we're flying around. We looked at this old disused area. And it was it was all concrete, but concrete looked like it was broken into lumps. We didn't want to put down on it. And then ended come on the radio and he said, Listen, I must have seen a strip which went off and grass strip went off at 90 degrees to this runway, not far from it. I almost touched it. He said, Right, we'll put down there. So we put down there. We were on our way to Sywell at this stage. And we weren't that far from Sywell. But anyway, we put down there, and when we put down there, as soon as we shut down the engine, you see this Jeep coming across and I thought, oh, here we go. We're in a spot of bother now. But it was a really nice farmer and he owned the strip and we had a good old chap in the music. We didn't have PPR and we just needed to put down. And he brought us out in the Jeep and we bought sandwiches and we got fuel and it was fantastic. And then we flew on the Sywell. And um, the, the European Championship, it was the night, I think it was the night that David Beckham missed that penalty in Portugal for, for England. Oh yeah, put it right over the bar. Yeah, the one that still hasn't landed yet. But <laughs> well, I wanted to watch the match, but no one else, Mike and Andy, they weren't interested in the football. So we marched on, we had a lovely flight down down into London Colony. Um, and we landed there, and as we landed there, the whole place was deserted. But there was an instructor who just had to pack it up, he had a flex wing on it, thing, and he drove in. He'd seen us come into land, so we drove in. So he drove us down the pub and we had a few skews and we hopped in our tent. And the whole the whole thing was, once we were camping at that stage, the whole thing was, wake up in the morning, look out, if the weather's good enough, we'll go flying, if it's not, we'll pull the thing down in the back of the sleep. So we woke up anyway to Tuesday morning. And Mike says, right, where are we going? And he was just annoying me at this stage, you know what I mean? I didn't have me a cup of tea yet, I need me a cup of tea and me smoke, I love me a cup of tea and me smoke. So I don't know where we're going. And then I says to him, he said, we can't go somewhere. And I says, right, tell you what, let's fly the Raven back to the factory in Medway. Because I've always wanted to do that. So we did, and we had a lovely, a nice early morning flight um, down over Epping Forest. I think it was over Epping Forest. You arrived down on the banana strip, which was quite daunting because on the right-hand side as we approached, there was these massive, massive cables, and you can hear them buzzing in your headset. And you think you're closer to them than you actually are, but they're very daunting, they're big, big power station cables. So anyway, we landed, we landed in there, and uh, 
just having a cup of tea, talking to the instructors, had a look around. Chris Draper gave me a little look around the factory. I said, yeah, this is great. And then I come back in, get me a cup of tea, and there's Mike. Where are we going, lads? I says, I don't know, Mike. I'm happy I got this far, do you know what I mean? And he says, and he opened up his map again, and he says, it's not that far to France. I said, you what? He says, not that far to France. I said, right, we're going to France, so we have to go to Headcon first. Anyway, we got bollocked over in Headcon. And we landed there for not following proper procedures or something. And for, by the, the, the chief instructor there at the time. Because there was a helicopter, right? Now, now, I'm not saying I was in the right or the wrong or, or making any excuses. This is a fact. This is what happened. But as I come in to land, I called in and I had mistaken another field from a distance for the runway. So I had been cleared to set up on a left base. But the left base I'd set up on was for the wrong runway. It wasn't even a runway, it was just a field. So I was actually approaching more or less down the middle of the runway um, and kind of in an overhead joint position. So I radio back in. There was also, we heard nothing on the radio. There was a helicopter hovering along the runway. We were watching them for a while. So I called in and I said, look, there's traffic on the runway. I said, I'm after getting this wrong. I said, um, do you now want us? I said, I'm in an overhead joint position. Do you now want us to, to, to go around or vacate until the traffic's cleared? And I got quite a rate, an irate person on <laughs> Just land the plane. So I said, right, I'll just land it. So I did, but the runway is real long and head on. So I was able, this helicopter's hovering down the other end, I was able to go way over the top of it, man, and drop down, landed long, thought I need fuel, pulled up by the fuel pump. And when I pulled up by the fuel pump, now it was quite amusing, but I don't want, I'm not, I, I, I'm not belittling and making fun of anybody. Um, while I was at the fuel pump, this, the helicopter comes in and he lands on a little stand. And the helicopter pilot kept looking at me. And I thought, geez, maybe I'm in his way. You know, he wants fuel or something. I'm like, in his way. But he kept looking at me. Then he gets out with a helicopter. And he had, he was a proper helicopter pilot. He had a, he had a, a beigey, yellowy colour tie. And I had little helicopters on. That's <laughs> how you know you've made it in life. <laughs> Maybe a couple of helicopters and he shot as well, right? And I don't know whether he was an instructor, but but anyway, he just he just he was just looking at me. That's all. He was just, yeah, yeah. And the next thing, Mike comes out. He says, "Are you finished there?" I said, "Yeah, boy. Do you want you?" He said, "No, we're being called into the tower. The chief instructor wants a word." And I said, "Oh, well, yeah, yeah, fair enough." So off we went, and I can't remember his name. He's a really, really nice chap. But we got called in, and I had the no agenda because then the cook might be a little bit fiery, do you know what I mean? And I, I, I knew from the way the helicopter pilot was looking at us, we were getting bollocked over something. I wasn't sure what yet. So I had a no agenda and said, listen, you put your head down. Sorry, that's the only words you need to know. Sorry. Put your head down. Terrible sorry. I'm really sorry. Um, so anyway, and I said, don't try and explain yourself either. So when we get, when he, he had the three of us lined up, and he went through us, must have been for about 10 minutes. And we're the kind of people who give Mike Relates a bad name. Just us. No one else ever gave Mike Relates a bad name. Just us. And, um, and look, there was a whole load of, uh, I won't call them mistakes. They weren't mistakes, but there was a, 
procedure wasn't followed. Uh, some of it dealt with inexperience. That's not an excuse because sometimes you don't follow the procedure can end up with dramatic consequences. So I won't, I won't make little of it, but we were getting bollocks. And I, and I could see end of it, his hands behind his back and he's not over yet, boy. I'm not just say sorry, sorry, sorry. And then after that, when he'd finished bollocking us, he just said, right lads, do you need flight plans? Do you need this? Could not have been more helpful. File the flight plans for us and all that to go to France. So half past three that afternoon off we went to France and we landed in the 2K. And it was, I had a bit of a bird strike on the top of my wing. When I heard a clatter of it, it was a swallow or something out of Bologna. And I was, I was thrilled with myself. I'd now flown a micro and far enough that there was terracotta roof tiles and I had to put my watch forward in there. You know? <laughs> and oh. get your passport stamped. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, proper, proper hero I was. But I didn't know where Mike was gone, Mike and Ender were gone. I didn't see them across it. See, I didn't realise how close France was because it was a lovely sunny day, but it was hazy. Mm. So when we were crossing, when we were crossing the English Channel um, to Campania, we couldn't see the other side because it was hazy. It wasn't foggy, it was hazy. We could see ships and we could... So all of a sudden we arrived at France much earlier than I expected. But apparently Mike, Mike couldn't find one of his gloves. So he landed, <laughs> so he landed in the first field he found in France and then they landed in beside him. And I was gone on to the, the 2K to see could they find his gloves and never did find it. He must have gone for a swim at some stage. Um, but we ended up in the 2K. Oh, we thought we were great to have seen the price of a pint. Oh, <laughs> unbelievable. Well, the, 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 like said, the, the cost of living there was phenomenal, but the people in the airport were brilliant. They said, there's bad weather coming in. It started hissing rain, absolutely lashing rain, about 45 minutes after we landed in the two. And then these massive hangers, so we put the, we put the three flex wings in the corner behind. And then, then they, they, they got us a hired car, which we should never let end the drive, because he only has two speeds, stop and go. <laughs> and then, and it was a dinky little car. We only just squeezed in it. But they, they got us a hard car and they also sorted us out the cheapest hotel. That's and that, right. was, that was Yeah, but that was Tuesday evening. But then the weather turned bad. And it was the time when hangars in England were being blown over with aircraft in them. Mm. Actually turned over with aircraft. And the weather just got absolutely horrendous for Wednesday and Thursday. And we're still in the two Friday, I said, no way, I need to get to the other way. And it was a lovely day, but it was still long, nearly 20 miles an hour. And it was into our face back across the English Channel. So I said, where are we going? And we were after being talking to a fellow who flew uh, Britain, Norman, Trilander. Oh, wow. That was his job. He'd go from Lid to Latuke every day, and he dropped the passengers off, he'd hang around any time, back in the house. Real, very nice chap. And he said, go on into Lid, rather than go all the way back to headquarters. So we did, we flew back, went into it, got a bit of breakfast, and then we flew. It was a bit bumpy and it was a bit hot and choppy, and we flew all the way along the south coast of England. It was fantastic. And then we did a hop into Sponfield on the Isle of Wight on the Friday evening. But the weather was, it wasn't going to let up, you know. And I wanted them people, and wanted to fly everywhere, and Mike wanted to fly everywhere. Once I got there, that was me. I was going to be a social animal, and I'd, I'd fly when I was going home again. Um, but we went to go home then on Sunday and the weather was horrendous so we went in the tower to see what was going to happen 
Um, it's, it was a little bit cloudy, it wasn't too bad. There was a few showers, but it was blowing the gale. And the flex wing turned over at the end of the runway and sat down lining up. So I just looked at Mike, I said, I'm going nowhere. And then I said, well, no, I have to get home. I don't do get home, I just, I, I find it it's extremely risky, so I just don't do it. So I said, no, I'm staying. And he went off anyway, he got home. But myself and Mike stayed. So four o'clock, quarter past four, Monday morning, uh, we said, right, we'll go, because what we'll do is we'll go to Wing Farm, which was just up the other side of the New Forest. Um, we'll get some fuel at Wing Farm. And then we'll go from, we used to go wing farm, then there was another little strip that was closed now, just across at the Severn Bridge in Wales and Westport, no, Newport. Um, used to land there, nice chap there, to have fuel, and then we go up there to have fuel. But we were expecting about an hour to, um, about an hour to wing farm. Turns out we were two and a half hours to wing farm. Because, and it, it was smooth, it was nice, but we just weren't going anyplace. Mm. Just into a headwind. Um, then it was it was another more than two hours would have started to get choppy then by the time we got to Newport. And then by the time we got to Haverford West, Mike was behind me. And on the radio, he actually asked, I was landing, I think it was 2-2, I think the runway was. It was, it was east-west and we were landing into the west. But... As I was landing, it was rough and it was choppy. I was probably getting lifted out of the seat a couple of times. And as I was lined up for the runway, Mike actually got on the radio and he said, are you landing on the grass or the tarmac? I said, I'm landing on the tarmac. He said, well, why do you keep skipping over to the grass every so often? And it was it was just rough. Yeah. Now, when you're looking at someone else, it always looks rougher than the field. But it was rough. So we landed in there and Mike wanted to carry on. I said, no, no, not doing it. I'm not going. I'm not going to fly across the Irish Sea. I rang me mate Henry in Wexford, and he said, "No, it's not a guy out there." I said, "I'm not going into that headwind across the Irish Sea because I'd be at least two hours over the sea." And I said, mm. "So we ended up. We got a. We got a, a lift. Oh, you got a lift or a taxi? Can't remember. It's a fish guard. And we got the two o'clock in the morning ferry home to Wexford." And the weather cleared up then for the Sunday. So he got a he got a lift back off the fella in a plane to Haverford West, five the flight plans. I went on the ferry and had flight plans for half three in the afternoon and we flew home then. So we the following Sunday. But I remember, I remember sitting there. Haverford West had a little bit of twin, the King Air or something like that. One of them posh ones. We didn't have the blinds on the window. You turned the window and the window turned black. One of them ones. And they had, and, and posh people used it for going fishing in Ireland and stuff, right? Because they'd, they'd pull up in their Mercedes or their, their big car or whatever, and then the pilot would run out and the pilot would put the bags into the plane for them and, and off they'd go. I mean, me and Mike were there, and we're looking disheveled. We've had 10 days on the go. We're looking terrible disheveled. We're in the tower, figuring everything out. We were he we were heading off that, that day, right? And, and um, the pilot came in and he says, uh, he only had all his pips in him overkill. And he went up to a man in the tower and he says, could we just have a weather report, please? Uh, we want to go across to Ireland. And your man says to him, I'll never forget it because it made me laugh. He says to him, oh, don't worry about a weather report. Just follow them two microliters. They're going there. <laughs> 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 um, the wind case he just turned on his heels and he left but I just found it very amusing at the time um, but that was that was 
Well, that wasn't the first big adventure. The first big adventure was, was in the little two-stroke. Before I got to 912, we went to, we went to open in Scotland. That was proper adventure, that was. Open in Scotland, landed on Giga Island, and then, and I thought, once, once we landed on Giga Island, I thought, that's it. I've no more sea crosses. But I actually <laughs> did. I actually did, because the next 57 miles up to Oban was stunning, stunning countryside. There's nowhere you're going to put down, you're going to head for the sea. Maybe yeah. only the shallow bit, you were going to head for the sea. And then on the way back, the weather turned and we didn't make it to Giga Island. We were two hours indicating 60 miles an hour. We were two hours, 57 minutes to do 57 miles. Mm. And we got near Giga Island, but we ended up having to put down on the side that we just couldn't see. It was having a bit of rain. We were forced down to 600 feet over the sea. I, I, just, I never wanted to flood again, as it happens. Um, and we put down on the side of the Mullah Qatar, where we met a deer stalker. Now, that's a whole different story. But we met a deer stalker with a very excitable dog and a load of rifles in the Jeep. But I remember Enda saying to him, it was a Sunday afternoon and it was lashing. We're stuck in the side of the Mullican tire. I had my, I had my flex wing in a, in a silage pit thing, the three walls of a handball court for silage. I have mine in there, Enda says on top of the headland. And Enda says to him, he said, yeah, look, the spot of bother. Mickey had had an engine failure and crashed down by the sea, so we had to go and recover that. So it was not a big adventure, but just the funny bit, because I won't make a long story of this, uh, as Enda says to him, he says, you must be the microliters. So it's a little single track road, it's a tiny little road, uh, in the middle of nowhere. It turns out we landed on a 20,000 acre farm owned by some English gentry, so there was no people in it. And he looks at us and he says, uh, me and uh, Mickey, and we were drowned. It was pissing them. And he says, uh, Sunday afternoon about lunchtime. And he says, you must be the microliters. I said, yeah, 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 we're the microliters. He says, there's one down there, he says. I said, yeah, that'll be mine. He says, there's one up there on the hill. And I said, yeah, that'll be mine. And he looks Mickey up and down and he says, I knew something was amiss. <laughs> and Enda said, said, look, it's Sunday afternoon, we have to get home, you know, we've got to sort something out, Mickey's at the crash, Kayla, the trike broke, no injuries, but, so we need to sort something out, he says, is there a pub? And your man says, John, and John, I think it was John Petrie, his name was, Peter Petrie. What a name. Well, that, what a name was Petrie, but he says, Enda says, is there a pub? He says, I... There's a pub about eight miles and he nods down that way. And then they said, but he said, it's not open. It's not open yet. And this is the 22nd of September, right? And this says, it's not, he says, it's not open yet. And this says, well, when does it open? He said, April. <laughs> so so in, the end, we, in the end, we chatted him up a little bit and he brought us to a place called Ardorishik and we got fuel and we got a bit of soup and, and he allowed us to stay. It turns out he was a deer stalker uh, who worked for the farm and uh, the English, um, uh, like City of London type stockbrokers, businessmen and all that would pay 10 grand for a weekend so he could teach them how to sneak up on the deer, right? That's, that's really what it was. So he was part of the farm. So he allowed us to sleep in his, um, in his farm or in his, in his deer stalker's lodge. 
that night. And it was still blowing a gale the next day, but it was blowing a gale in the right direction. So I went down and I, I put Enda says, I'll wait to see if you take off. He said, I'll wait up the top of the, the thing. And, and I was sitting in his little 462, got it started. And then a school bus came along. And I couldn't, I couldn't manage the wing on the ground. It was just too windy. And, and I'm thinking, well, I won't. I won't be able to do it on my own. Just physically wouldn't be able to do it on my own. And the school bus stopped and the driver gets out. And a few kids get out. He said, do you need a hand? And I said, well, look. I said, you got to be very careful with that propeller. I said, well, if you wouldn't mind getting the couple to hang on to me wing words, well, I want this thing up. And then when I say, let go, let go. So that's what they did. There was kids holding on to me on the wing words. And then I just said, let go. And they let go and away I went. And, and, you know, it, it wasn't really engine failure territory because it wasn't a cliff, but it was quite a steep, grassy drop down to the water of about two or three hundred feet. So really, it was like an aircraft carrier takeoff, straight <laughs> off the end of it. And then the wind was that strong, and you get this instant altitude, and, and we made it home that day. But that was, that was a very, quite horrendous to get home in that evening. Um, so we've always had this thing where we've never really got the weather. And that's where the tree actually <laughs> I'm seeing a trend, mainly because when we did the Round Britain Microlight Rally for, with, with BBC, we had to leave the aircraft in Insplundle in Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, and, and this is what had happened. Now, look, a better man than myself would fly at home in some of these conditions. But I'm one of them people, if I didn't enjoy it, if I didn't, feel, I didn't find it pleasant, well then... If there was another alternative, I'd take that. Yeah. Because you can always come back and get it and finish your adventure. Yeah. Well, I, I remember that day we were going up to Inns and we were getting 90 degree wing overs and it, it just wasn't an enjoyable experience. And it was quite glad to know when them back wheels touched the, the ground in Inns that we were we were done flying. Yeah, I was and I wasn't. Hmm. I think, I think I'd have been happier. I'd have been happier just to do the one more flight to Belfast. Yeah, I'd have been happier to leave it in Belfast because then at a moment's notice you could just go and get it. Yeah, yeah, because well, I remember the scramble we had trying to get like Ryanair flights out of there and then a taxi parked on my foot and it was that's another story altogether. Was, but... really? <laughs> well, you know, look, that's, that's just how it goes. Yeah, yeah. But talking about the Round Britain Rally, how did BBC get in contact with, with, with you to, to get us to go and undo the Round Britain Rally for, for the, the uh, Real Magnificent and, and their Flying Machines documentary? Quite strange, and, and I found it, I found it strange and flattering in equal proportions. Um, somebody rang me and said, we're from Walker George Films in London, and we're looking for something to do the Round Britain Rally, and we're going to be making a documentary about it, we're going to be following three crews, and they gave me the thing. And they said, we've been going around England, because I got fairly well known the circuit around England and um, Scotland, and around, let's say around the UK, a lot of people knew me. And I'd done the spam field and I'd done a bit of karaoke, just the usual crap that I'd get up to. And uh, well, people, people seem to remember me for some reason, but um, the girl said, Look, we're after being, we're after going around England, all the clubs and all, asking. They said, Want somebody with personality? Did your name kept coming up? So we said we wanted we wanted to do it, and then they said, "Would well, you mind if we came out and made it?" I made a pilot, which you remember the pilot that came out and made that. And then they did tell me afterwards that the BBC commissioned it on the strength of the pilot, hmm. and that they 
they, they wanted us in it. But it was that, that's what I'm saying for somebody um, who's doing something like that to get program commissioned by the BBC to ring you up and say, You're we were putting your name around the UK, or we were putting this around the UK, and your name kept coming up. It's actually quite flattering because it must yeah. be. I, I must have a half decent name in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Well, at this stage, you you were you were chairman of the National Microlife Association and everything. I think at that stage, and you were the Irish delegate on the uh, European Microlife Federation as well, and also during all this. Well, the chairman of the all of that happened by accident as well. Yeah. The European Microlife Federation didn't. Um, that was something that I actually that I actually fought for that we would get involved with. Um, but what I didn't like, and especially having been training officer of the Parachute Association of Ireland, where I had gone into Baldonna military base on, on a Tuesday night and signed off to your masters and trained instructors and stuff. Uh, for the military, I knew the importance of training, I knew the importance of procedures, I knew the importance, even though we didn't quite get the right head card, but I didn't know, I didn't know all of the, uh, I didn't know all that, I, I knew all that, and I thought it was extremely dangerous when I came across, when I started microlighting and I came across all these people with no training, most of them didn't know how to rig it or anything like that. And it was just, ah, oh, come on, we'll be all right, let's go and have a lash. And there had been a few crashes. And all I wanted was proper training that we had to go to the UK to get a license. Um, and I was running a thing at the time called Teddy Fit, where it was in Clonbelow, where we brought microlighting and, and fair play to the British microliters, they flew over and we got 70 odd aircraft in from the UK. You know, and they'd all bring a teddy bear and then we'd have a certificate with the, the registration of the plane that the teddy came in. And, and there's like a little teddy passport thing. And we raffled them off for Bray Homes on That was when I was in London, in for Temple Street Children's Hospital. And, and we done about five grand, I think, the first year. Um, and I'd gone to the National Microlite because I was keeping myself to myself. I gone to the National Microlite Association just to inform them about Teddy Fit. And I came out as vice chairman. <laughs> I wasn't even a member. I had to become a member to be the vice chairman. But I came out as, I came out as vice chairman. Not because I knew anything, but just because I opened my mouth and nobody else did. Yeah, yeah. So I immediately, I immediately thought that there's something not right here. So I got liaisons. Uh, into a bit of liaising with the BMAA, who everybody had had respected, because all of our lads were the ones who were trained were flying on UK licenses. They had mm. most of our aircraft were UK registered aircraft, and we had UK inspectors, and everything was UK. So I, I did get I got to Chris Finnegan at the time. Chris Chris has been an absolute gentleman, and he's turned into just like Paul Jewers, an extremely good friend. Um, over the years, and he came over. We did a meeting, and then we tried to build the association. I ended up chairman the following year. Um, but the big problem was, they had said to me, "Do I want to go and meet the aviation authority?" And I said, "No." I do want to meet with them, but not now, because I will not meet with anyone unless I can speak with the same level of vocabulary on a subject as they might have. So it was time to start learning the rules. So I had to start learning the rules. Now I do have a photographic memory, which was stood me in great stead because it used to amuse some of the lads at meetings because I could quote, I could quote from 
from the books that they had on the other side of the table with all the little tabs to show them the pages. So I could actually, I could actually quote from those books. Uh, and we used to win the meetings. It was great. We never gained anything from it other than we won the meeting. Because you know you've won a meeting. You see, my dad used to tell me, the person who's right will always win an argument. And I realized that's not true. Mm. The person who has the largest vocabulary on the subject will win the argument. Yeah. If you see two people arguing outside the pub, and eventually one of them takes a swing at the other one, the fellow who just took the swing has just lost the argument. Yeah. He's only took the swing, he ran out of words, if you get, if you get what I'm saying. So I had to learn this, and, and I started learning, I started quoting from a minute, but you know you won because they find the table and say, pretty authority, and that's what we say, right? And you think, right, well, we won that. And I used to love it. I used to love to pit me wits against people who are on 100, 200 grand a year, whatever it was. And I've borrowed 20 quid from me bus fare to get there. To pit me wits against them across the table and win, regardless of whether there was any prize at the end, because we never were going to get it. And then in 2004, they brought out the um, AIC. So 11 of 2004, I think it was 11 of 2004. And effectively what it did was, we had no training in Ireland, but it outlawed the English license or the, or the, the British UK license. That was outlawed and all our, all our products were flying on. But now all of a sudden they couldn't fly on. Um, and that, and that needed to be addressed. So where do you go with insurance? Where do you go something gets killed? So all that needed to be addressed. And at the time we had we had been notified that there was the European Microlighting Federation um, starting up. Uh, Keith Nagel, an, an absolute, absolute gentleman. And I'd like to say he was a dear friend. A fabulous, fabulous man. He'd set up with French, who a friendly called Dominic Maroons. And both of them, God rest them, have passed since. Um, but Dominic and Dominic and Keith are gone, and, and there was Ritika from from Holland. They had set this up, not realizing it was going to get so big, but it got huge, absolutely huge. And and the first meeting was in Paris in 2004. I went. There was me. Hey, hey, first meeting. And I'd, and the only other time I'd ever been to Europe, anywhere in Europe, was the time I'd flown in the. In, um, which is only, a, I think, a few months earlier or whatever it was. It was when I was flown to the, to the 2K in the microwave with Mike. And uh, we got to Paris and it was, oh, it was, it was a different level. And everybody knew everybody else's language bar us, you know. Us, us and the English. Everybody else could speak a bit of French because they're all neighbours. And... Um, we went there and we all done our piece and the difficulties we were getting and we were getting, going to get support from from um, EMF, which we did. And we ended up members, we went to the 10 year anniversary in 2014 as we were, we were 10 years on that. We made some very, very, very good friends from all over Europe on that. But we had to learn all the rules and we learned all the rules. Um, to the point where, but the, the more we learned, the more the aviation authority wanted to dig their heels, because, and this is my this is this is my opinion, but I don't think I'm too far from from the truth. But for some reason, air wilderness seems to be quite practical, um, all around the world. But when it comes to pilot licensing, um, 
there's there's a certain um, snobbery about it. Mm. Don't want you don't want the young lads flying around in kites. They want Captain Knobhead from somewhere, you know, this Captain Knobhead in his 16 engine and five gallons of turn of the prop aeroplane. And that's the type of thing everyone, everyone has to be a captain. So, so that snobbery exists, that still exists. Oh yeah, um, I've experienced that so much uh, with, with, with my own line of work and everything like that. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, but saying that, however ridiculous you might think it is in the UK, the, the perception from, from my side and from our side is that when you go to the UK, it's so aviation friendly. Yeah. And that's, that, that's always, even on the Round Britain Rally, we were able to get mass transits and all sorts. Oh yeah, um, I remember us passing straight over the top of, was it was it Bryce Norton was stuck for doing circuits underneath us and in Ireland, that would never happen. Yeah, no, no, there's no way that would happen. No. Because I usually even get people saying, like, I remember I remember landing, um, it was on the road, we weren't far, or weren't long back from France. And I landed in Clonbelow, and I was walking by, and this fellow was doing a Cessna 172, I think it was. And quite a nice chap, and he says to me, are you going flying in your kite? I says, and then all the lads knew what I was like, so all the lads in the party, you can see them all going, ah, <laughs> I said to him, I asked his name, and I says, I am, yeah, I'm going up in my kite. I said, by the way, where did you come from? He says, oh, he's come from Sligo. And I said, uh, and do you go far? Oh, sometimes we'll get down the water further. And you mentioned a couple of places around Ireland. And I said, well, I tell you what, would you do me a favor? He says, yes, yes. I said, did you come back and talk to me all about me kite when you've been to France and back? But he was a dead nice chap, there was nothing personal. But then, you know me, I, I don't take things personally, I never have one. Yeah. No, I'm one of the old school where you can still disagree with someone and still be friends, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Just because of this The aviation authority at the time when they did end up to still do the same, it's got a little bit better, and I suppose. Uh, I think we'll, we'll touch on the aviation authority in a minute. Actually, uh, more or more recent uh, stuff after this. But carry on. Yeah. No. The um, if you want a culture change with anything, it requires a series of attitude changes. You've got to change opinion, and you've got to, not just a person's opinion. You've got to change mass opinion. Mm. Um. And then once you've done that and you've changed the opinion to support your argument, then you can start to get a picture. And, and, that, and that can take generations of time. No, but um, I, knew, I knew I wasn't liked in the aviation I, I always felt liked and respected amongst airworthiness. Mm. Always. And, and I mean, great rapport with their awareness. I never had an issue with their awareness, but licensing didn't like me. And the individuals in licensing didn't like me. And the individuals above them also learned to dislike me as well, because in the end, we had got extremely frustrated. We had got, we had a meeting in 2010, 16th of March, because it was the day before Paddy's Day. 
and we had a meeting, a European Migrant Federation meeting, where we had generic letters were sent by each individual club around Europe. Letters were being sent to the Minister for Transport to try and address the problems. That almost caused a diplomatic incident, so we were a little bit more disliked. Uh, it wasn't the case of being disliked because I never did this for myself. Mm. And, that's, and people never got that. I had my license. I had my insurance. I had my experience. My nose was clean. I was doing this for the people, for, for everybody else. Yeah. For, for the association, for the, not for everybody else. That sounds a bit patronizing, but for the sport in general. And I was doing it on a voluntary basis, and everything I did was on a voluntary basis. But because I'd signed stuff as chairman, I was the one who was going to get targeted. Mm. Um, and perhaps we both chairman as well, which is what happened. When you're always going to get targeted because it was it was it was Paul McMahon, not the NMAI anymore, even though you were signing it on behalf of your members because you were given a mandate from the members. Yeah. But I knew all that. I knew all that. And I also knew as well that the people that I was going to help, because this is what happens in life, that the people that you're going to help are the very people who are going to hang you out to dry somewhere down the line anyway. You know, so all that was going to happen. Um, and I knew it. I just didn't know to what extent and I didn't know how it was going to happen. But I did know. I thought I was ready for it to come. Um, so in 2010, anyway, after the meeting, we decided to put a demonstration outside Aviation House in Dawson Street. And we got all the posters done up who regulates the regulator and institute, IAA Institute against aviation. We got all these sort of things. The Parachute Club had also been experiencing difficulties, so they decided to roll in. And when we had this demonstration, it ended up on the 6-1 News. Uh, so we talk no more about it. But a couple of years later, there was a chat. Um, and I'm not going to mention any any names or anything in this because I'll just, keep, just give you the facts. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but there was a chap down the Parachute Club. And he didn't like me, but he didn't like me for a different reason. He, wanted me to sign him off as a chief instructor three times. And I turned him down three times because he just wasn't ready to be a chief instructor. Certainly yeah. not personally, he just wasn't ready. I'd signed many other people. Um, and he seemed to take this personally, but he, he went there with the airplane one day against the warning from me. Um, and then just made a calamity of errors the whole way down and looked at the downwind landing and breaking his ankle. He, even then, didn't follow procedure because I sent an airplane up to see was he already. So Jay's walked him back in. So if he was injured, he should have spread his parachute out and made himself visible and be to come and gone. Anyway, the upshot was uh, this led to a delay. He had a broken ankle. He was walking on a broken ankle. This led to a delay in, in medical intervention and stuff like that. Um, just all the wrong signals. So uh, we eventually got sorted out, but he blamed me. Mm. So he decided he'd write a nasty letter into the Aviation Authority saying that if I was to be left in charge, then people were going to die. And I was, I was very dramatic. It's more dramatic than Coronation Street on good day. They're like the Bourne films. <laughs> the Aviation Authority contacted me and said, well, look, can you come in and address this? I said, yeah, and I did. So I went in to address it. Um, and Tolly gave a good account of myself. And it only dawned on me then afterwards, they said, no, no, we're not going to give you permission to be a chief instructor. So I ended up losing my job as chief instructor, which was my job. Yeah. With a private company, which I wasn't happy about it. No, no avenue 
of appeal and it was supposed to be a suspension, but it was indefinite. Um, so I wasn't having it. So the upshot was, I said, I'd, I'd seek to get a judicial review. Uh, so I've got a legal team. Uh, sought leave for judicial review, was granted leave. And then coming up to the judicial review about three, four weeks beforehand, my solicitor abandoned me. And the way it works over here, if you lose your solicitor, you lose your barristers. Mm. It's about three weeks before this case is coming up. Now, I only found out from, from an email in a file there a couple of years ago, long after it was over, that she panicked because she'd never been in court or something. That was, that was how it was. I had to go out and buy a suit. A very, very good friend of mine who just happened to be the vice chairman at the time, Barwick. Um, he gave me money to go and get a suit. So I bought a suit. And after that, I was on my own. So I went in against them and they had the best of everyone. They had the best. Turns out, um, their junior counsel um, turned out to be one of my lecturers in Trinity College in second year. I'll get to that in a minute. But over the course of the three days, and, and, the, and the place was packed, courtroom was packed, um, parachutists, pilots, aviation authority, everybody was there. Newspapers were there, the whole lot. And I was oblivious to that because I had my back to them all the time. I'm looking up there. But over the three days, anyway, I won the case. Um, they didn't like the fact that I won the case because they had actually said they're going into the spouse and they blah, blah, blah. So after I'd won that case, then they published a report about me that had a whole load of lies in it about me. And these, was, this, these were things that had already been proven during the judicial review and the court had accepted and they had accepted that they weren't actually sustained. But they still decided to publish them on print. They they tried to say then I took another case against them for that, uh, and I ended up another two cases against them. But I took a case for that where they came in and their defence was, well, look, hang on a minute. Um, this report was published in April before the judicial review. But then I was able to point out that written in the report it said we're waiting for. We're waiting for a reserve judgment on the judicial review. So that couldn't have been able because the judicial review wasn't until June. So there was all this going on. Anyway, this went on for a few years. While I was doing it, I became very passionate about the English language and how powerful the English language is. And the English language became fleshy to me. It became something I could, like Lego, I could touch it and I could play with it and I could look at a letter and say, hang on a minute. There's a point in this letter but if I leave that in, it allows the point to be distracted from and you're not going to get back to it. So I'll take it out for it. And it's brilliant. Loved it. So I ran down to Trinity College in Dublin, which my mother got arrested. So she would have laughed if she'd have seen me. She used to go by on the bus and she said, the only way you'll pass through there is go in through that gate over there and come out on the other gate. She said, you know, you would you never manage in Trinity College. And I never had any, any school exams anyway. I left school at 15. So I went in and I said, look, how do I how do I learn about law? I said, I'm representing myself in the high court. I said, we'll come in and do an interview. So I went through all the proper application process, did an interview, and I got me place. And I did a full-time law degree in Trinity College. I graduated there in 2018. Um, so I had that as well. Plus, I wanted it because I knew this was going to be ongoing. And, and I didn't want to be caught out anywhere. I needed to learn stuff. So it was helping me out at the time. So anyway, in 2016, the cases 
settled. So I ended up, I suppose you could say, I, I won all of them. Um, Brilliant. Against them. And uh, that's, that's really where we are now. But you see, the thing is, I still always feel that I lost. And I will always feel that I lost. Because I had my 9-1-2-10, I got to sell them. I didn't realise had I been able to hang on to it for another couple of months, the cases would have been over and I still would have today. I really didn't yeah. want to sell that, but I haven't done it. Um, and when it came to it, like their whole thing was to uh, to take me on and to do that was to teach me a lesson and, and to get rid of me out of aviation. And effectively, it's, it's a good few years now since I've jumped and I do want to go back jumping. But I can't ever go back or don't want to go back at the level because... The people who I thought were going to protect me, the Parachute Association of Ireland, which I was a member for 25 years, um, didn't want to know. They were more interested in trying to look good with the Aviation Authority and they started feeding stuff about me that they should have never been telling. They were making up stories on feeding it back to the Aviation Authority to make themselves look good. Where I always thought, look, they're like, a, they're like a union. If I'm in trouble, they need to be protected because they didn't. And, and the same with the Parachute Club. They just... They wanted to carry on. They were worried about what the aviation authority might do to them. So so they bottled as well. So I was left on my own. As I said at the start of this interview, anything, everything bad that's ever happened to me, life has turned into something good. And I'm now yeah. sitting on an acre and I'm the house in the shed and I've just started up a, a motorcycle repair business. And, and so, you know, life's good. Life's always good. I'm a firm believer if, you, if bad things happen to everybody to teach you lessons. You yeah. don't want it too well. You can you can play the victim, in which case you're going to become the victim at some point if you play the victim. And if you play the victim, you're only you're only going to do it for attention anyway, which has a life expectancy. Um, or you can do something about it and see what comes out of it. Mm. Because even if I'd have lost the court cases, I still would have learned something. I wouldn't be where I am now, I'd be somewhere else, but I'd still be happy if I'd learned something. Yeah. Whereas if you play the victim, I call I call it um, being nomadic in terms of everything has the best before day. Mm. So you play the victim. But you come to me and say, you my girlfriend left. Oh, James Michael, that's terrible. Oh, and gives, give your daddy a big hug. You know what I mean? Right? Oh, no, well, it gives a big hug. Then go and make a cup of tea. Right. <laughs> this cements when I tell everyone that you're just a knob. <laughs> I know. Our own kids are just a knob. Well, I'm not. I'm not necessarily. I'm not a cool person at all. I don't do cool things. I don't. I don't have cool things, and I don't do cool things. Like as far as I'm concerned. But I mean, if because nothing in life. But this one I learned. Nothing in life is real. We're not even real. We're sitting there in an interview. We're not real, and I'll prove it to you. Right? You put yourself in a room with six people, and have a chat and a natter with them. And then leave the room and get them to discuss you. Each of those six people are going to discuss somebody different. Yeah. They're all going to discuss their perception of you. So, mm. so nothing real. You know, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing like it's real. So if people want to perceive somebody as being cool or somebody as being not cool, then, then that's, that's entirely up to them. But... But I certainly wouldn't consider myself cool. I've, I've struggled quite a lot through life, but I've achieved a lot in life. But that was all through my own choice because um, I remember my granny telling me years years ago, I was only tiny, she said, look, I'll tell you what, 
Only do things in life that make you happy. And when those things start making you happy, go find something that makes you happy and go do that instead. And that's and that's what I've done. I've achieved a lot. Like I'm I'm I'm, ro- I, I'm a motorcycle road racer. The other thing I, I love about the whole the thing that came out of the court case and everything was as well is that the initial complaint was about like you mentioned safety and everything like that, and yet you've you've been given a Paul de Sandier diploma award from the FAI for your contribution to safety in aviation. That was that was a massive surprise. Mm. That a from the, the Microlay Association had nominated me, and um, I was awarded that on the SS Rotterdam in Rotterdam in 2015. Now, I couldn't make it there; I was in college, so it ended up getting posted to me. But that's that's where it was to be awarded, and there's not many people in Ireland who've got one, as far as I'm aware. There's only a handful, um, mm. and it's, it's all in French, but it's for exceptional services to sport general aviation. So, wow. Yeah. I'm actually very, very proud of what I've achieved. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, very proud. I know I worked very, very hard at it. But it wasn't like work because it was always something like my granny said. It was always something that made me happy, something that I enjoyed. So I always did it, but it was never worth money. But I'm not money orientated. I don't like money. It scares me. It's nice to have a bit. But it's not It's not going to motivate me. I'd, I'd, I'd rather give than, than try to get. You know what I mean? Yeah. I remember uh, being sent on a business course by the social, um, social Department of Social Protection, second business, 2009. And, and I still see I still see the tutor now, and she still doesn't get it really, really nice. Again. She still doesn't get it. So we were all sitting there, there's about 18 of us. And we're all sitting there around the table the way you do, you know, like this is your primary school, and you got a sticker and a pen, you have your own name and sticker on it in case you forgot. And anyway, she come in and she was going around, what do you want? Oh, I want the big business. I want to be a millionaire. Everyone wanted to be a millionaire. Right? I want to be a millionaire. And then she got to me and said, what do you want? I said, I want to keep me life. And she said, sorry. To this day, she doesn't get it. She said, sorry. I said, I want to keep me life. She said, what? What do you mean? I said, I've got a great life. I've got time on my hands. At the moment, I said, I do bits and pieces here and there. A family that loves me, I like to go home. I said, I feel, um, at the time, we would be rented the house but I said I, I love my life I want to keep my life oh she said you know I want millions I said I love millions I love it but I can't go and get it and she says why can't you get it I said I can't go and get it because then that will become my life I want to keep the life I have I don't and then when I get it I have to try and hang on to it or try and get some more I said that becomes my life that's not the life you and to this day she didn't get it so I don't need money. I need enough money to pay me bills to do the things that I want to do. I don't need any more than that. And nobody really does. But money, money, genuinely, I think mainly I, I do that out of fear of money. Mm. I am terrified of it. I don't, I don't know why I'm terrified of it, but I just don't, I'm not a big fan of money. Yeah. I'm not money oriented. So, so that, that led me to where I went that I could do stuff. I always did it on a voluntary basis. Do it on a voluntary basis. You're not doing it for free. You're doing it really at your own expense. Like for years, and eventually the Microlight Association paid for me hotel and, and my meals and stuff um, when I went to BMF. But initially, for the first four or five years, I was paying for that. But it was great. 
we went to Venice and we went to Oslo and I've seen people. I had dinner with the president of Krakow in the 16th century palace with a gold leaf invitation. <laughs> if I tried being in there now, I'd be shot. <laughs> I didn't even know it was the president. <laughs> I'm in there having me school. I was in the 16th century council chamber. There's an original 16th century staff with a big wooden pole that had a silver, a silver thing on the bottom. So, but you bang it twice to start a meeting since the 16th century, right? And I went to bang it. And a woman comes, she grabbed me arm like that. She says, no. <laughs> And she stopped eating, right? But then we went out and we're having a bit of The meal was funny, it was right on breadboards that were standing up. They were standing up like that. And there's all these vegetables and fruit and all that was cooked, but they were actually making pictures. It was a shame to eat it. They were yeah, like yeah. paintings. It was fabulous, but this man came out in a suit, and we were having a laugh, a few dirty jokes, you know, yeah. A few beers, having a bit of crack with. And he just just a fella in a suit. And I went home all disappointed and I thought at least the president could have come out and seen us we were in his, his palace, right? Or at least that was a fabulous place. I said he could have come out to see us. So I'm having a great and nudging your man in the ribs and I wait you hear this one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm a bit disappointed. But it was the time the Euros were on. And the Euros were on in Poland, right? It's only a few years ago. Yours on in Poland. So I got home and I was sitting watching the telly with Lisa. There was an evening game on in Krakow. I'm sitting there watching the telly and I had the president's coffee. You're all waiting on the president of Krakow. Right? I'm sitting, I know I'll get to see what he looks like, you know, because it's only a few weeks later. No, I'll get to see what he looks like. It was him. <laughs> it was him. And he came and he sat down I'm, and I'm looking at Lisa now. Lisa's not really there. It's him. That was him. That's who I had dinner with. <laughs> Yeah, that's who I elbowed in the ribs to tell him another funny joke. Yeah, so, so I did actually, I did actually meet the president of Krakow. We had, we were in the Czech Republic, and um, in 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 what's that place in the church? Prague. All right, okay. We were in Prague, and, and they had the um, they had the the Department of Transport opened for us on Saturday and Sunday to have our meet. And I was walking up with Joe Conrad for Germany, walking up these marble, big marble sweeping staircases. I've been on Titanic or something. I'm walking up and there's these fellas with guns down and they had a little metal detector thing, right? And the others was coming in and I started laughing. And Joe said to me, what are you laughing at? I said, Joe, look around you. So we're in the Czech Department of Transport opened for us, nobody else. We're walking up a marble staircase, I said to him. You see them lads on the door? He says, yeah, yeah. I said, you try to come back in here on Monday and see what happens. Said, this is huge, yeah. <laughs> no, this is, this is fantastic. We went to Lisbon and we did we did tours. We went to the furthest west of the point. I got to fly in a Quicksilver in, in Lisbon with this head case. I don't know who he was, right? He just turned up. He had a leather helmet and he did a cigar. And the cigar was like a big telegraph. And he had his big silver, no one to go with him, so I went with him. And we flew all along the cliffs there did, in, in Portugal. And I had a great flight with him. And the faster we went, the bigger the flow was on his chair. And it was, it was, I was, you know, I've had some absolutely 
stunning world-class experiences. I get reindeer in Oslo. No, if, if, if I hadn't have been doing what I was doing, I would have never got to do that. So I we went on it. I'll give you a laugh, and I, 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 I'll probably finish on this because I'm at the end. I don't really know what else to tell you. But I've, I've got one more point to touch on after this. But yeah, carry on. Right, but I just got. I'll, I'll give you this anyway. Right. Right. Um, we went to the Acosta French fortune. Right. It was the the the, the tenth anniversary of 2014 of your Football Federation. So we had a dicky ball, the whole shoot match, you know, tuxedo. Lisa was in a dress, blah, blah. And we got on this boat to do a cruise. It was a proper silver service waitress meal thing on a boat, cruise up and down the Seine. And have a look at the Eiffel Tower and the Notre Dame and all from the river, which is fantastic. And we're all sitting there. But I don't get the whole posh meal things, right? So my dinner, I ordered the, the duck with the pepper sauce, right? But we're at a table with there was us, the Spanish, the Belgians, and the French, right? They don't normally find things funny. <laughs> but we're sitting there. The, the plate was, I can't even show you on the on the screen. The plate was huge, big rectangular plate, right? If they had had normal sized plates, we'd have got at least another two people at the table, right? For starters. <laughs> the food was gorgeous. But all your all your um, um, vegetables and stuff are in them. Everything's in the medallion, right? It's all in the medallion. Medallion of vegetables. And, stuff. and then there was a bit of hedge up the top left-hand corner. I'm not sure what that was for. I wasn't eating it anyway, right? But mine arrived. And the duck was in the middle. And all the pepper sauce was splashed all over the plate. Everywhere except on the duck. Right? <laughs> I am having none of this. Now, with Lisa being a chef, this was obviously going to be a bit embarrassing for her. I said, well, look, at, look, at that. look at my plate. I said, it's huge. There's a few bits on it. I said, and he's at the missing the duck with the pepper sauce. And she said, stop it. She said, don't. She just don't say another word. She said, that's presentation. I said, I want to eat it, not look at it. She says, no, no, that's presentation. So anyway, the fella come along, the waiter come along, he had the thing obviously. He come along, he says, Monsieur, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's very hard to get the French and the Belgians to laugh, right? I said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I said, um, but I ordered the duck and I said, Lisa's gone, oh, Jesus, no, I said, and I said, if I ordered the duck and the pepper sauce, oh, wee, 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 wee. I said, would you tell the chef? He must have thought he was Zorro, right? Would you tell the chef he appears to have missed the duck with the pepper sauce? And then Lisa, your man's looking confused, and Lisa says to me, She says, You can't say that. I said, Why not? I said, He did miss the duck with the pepper sauce. I said, You don't go down the ice cream van, down in the ice cream van, and you buy a 99, and your man says, You want chocolate sauce on that? And you say, Yeah, and he sprays it all over the van. Yeah, he puts it on your ice cream. You don't have to dunk it. <laughs> she went really red and the French the French events had a bit of a laugh. Food was fantastic, but we still had to we still had to stop McDonald's. We got the bus to stop outside McDonald's and the Chance de Lise on the way back. So we were a bit stern. In the tuxedo and the dress of McDonald's darkness. <laughs> <laughs> We've had some fabulous times. Life's, life's been good, but I do need to get really back 
to where I was. Because like I said, after the cup places, it's uh, still kind of feel they won. Not mm. monetary terms, but the monetary did the money didn't mean that to me. Other than yeah. it made us more comfortable. Um, but they set out to do whatever they wanted to do as far as my flying was concerned. My skydiving yeah. was concerned. And, and, and at the moment, because I'm not doing much of any really, um, at the moment, they, I, I think they've, they've achieved what they set out to do, or what I mm. believe they set out to do. So, yeah. so, so there you go. Out of out of everything that that you've done and stuff, what what has been your favourite? Oh, that's tough. That's tough because I've had favourites at different times and much along the same way. I said, my granny said, to me, do things that that you really enjoy when you stop enjoying them doing something else. On that basis, there's there's been quite a few favourites. Favourite. I suppose the biggest achievement would be the legal stuff. Mm. Because it, it, it took the most. Everybody yeah. knows what I did, but nobody knows what I had to go through in order to do it. Yeah. I, I, I'd heard the expression before myself, uh, it, a roller coaster. You know, it, it, it's a real roller coaster of highs and lows. I didn't understand that until I started getting these things where it started getting complex and it started getting intense. And and you could go to bed on a high after sending an email. You hear you send an email. I wake up the next morning, there's a reply and email on your on your phone that absolutely slams you back down into the ground. You have to start again. So I said in terms of achievement, it would have to be the legal stuff. And even I think it's a big achievement, although I, I considered it a bit of a laugh at the time or a bit of escapism um, was going back to college for four years with all the young people and, and getting a law degree yeah so, I don't know whether that's ever going to be my favourite um, getting caught out in Scotland and landing on the side of the Mullican Tire that was, that was a, a massive achievement as well because that's the day that I learned that I will break before this machine does yeah it was rough, and I, and and it was also a time afterwards where I said I won't fly in that again, but I'd still make a step up as to what I would fly in. So, so to me, that was an achievement. Um, I think I look. I think my favourite time was EMF, and I missed them. Mm. Um, I do genuinely miss them. I made some very very good friends all over Europe, and we had meetings, and we had scraps, and. And, and we achieved things and we didn't achieve other things. And, but we're all friends to meet those people, to see those places. So I think, I think what started that was me going to tell the Microlight Association about Teddy Field and completely accidentally coming out as a chairman, I wasn't even a member. Um, I think that, that then, I suppose, would have to be my favourite because that's what led to everything else. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I, I enjoy life. I enjoy what I do. Now, I, I, I go with social, social media. I have great fun with it as well because I just throw a whole load of crap up there because people don't get it. It's not real. <laughs> social media, you don't think it's real. That's all that's in your world. But it's not real. 
So you can you can just throw something up and just sit back with your book and a popcorn and, and watch the fireworks fly and people killing each other. It's not real. Um, well, now I just think they were Life's good. Yeah. Life's always yeah. been good. I do for now, I'm getting old. No. No, I do, yeah. I just, I just... I you just forget it. Sometimes, sometimes I remind myself and think, well, it's not long now till I'm 60. Yeah. You know, it's less than five years till I'm 60. Yeah. And I don't feel I like it. You know, so, so, but life's good. I do know one thing. It's when I sit down and my time has come and I'm my pipe and my slippers and my big thing of alcohol team or coke or whatever it is, I'm sitting there. Talking to the grandson, and now, now, so now, I've got no regrets, and I won't have any regrets. Yeah, because I've done, I've done everything I wanted to do, and it hasn't been materialistic. And if it hadn't been materialistic, well, then I wouldn't have the same outlook and attitudes that I have now. Yeah. Funny thing is, the funny thing is, it's like I'm, I'm sitting in my own bar here now, the pool table and the big screen and the dartboard, and and so, but. Uh, what I've been doing has never been materialistic, but what I have discovered is, is that if you, if you stick by what you're doing and you enjoy what you're doing, material things will come and they'll come when you least expect. So, so it's, that's that's about me in a nutshell, really. It's been really good, Dan. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on today, and it is great to finally get an insight into what goes on in that mind and head of yours after 26 years of of not really. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more going on in there that I just I wouldn't I wouldn't inflict on you. <laughs> I do appreciate that. Well, normally, normally on the phone and on the video calls, I wouldn't be anywhere near this long. But there you go. Yeah, I tried to get out a few times, but you kept saying, "Oh no, one more point." No, <laughs> it's been it's been a pleasure, and it's great. It's it's, it's great that I was able to do it, and it's it's I don't know where it's and it's, no, it's not flattering. It's more humbling, I think. Um. Because I've seen your other guests mm. and, 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 and the prestige and all that goes with your other guests. And, and it'll be interesting to see um, where you think I might fit in amongst all that. <laughs> because I really don't see myself in, in, in anyone's league. And it's, it's quite just, funny. I've, I've interviewed... I, I've interviewed someone who's, who's met the Queen, but you're the first person I've ever met who's met a, a head of state and tried to bash a staff that's only been bashed by that head of state since the 16th yes, century. 16th century! I think there's a picture on Facebook of it. But look, I got to jump into, I got, I got to jump into the, the American ambassador's residence and um, on Independence Day, where you meet government officials and all that. But, it's, it's been but great, because I've, I've got because to... I do, because I do the things I enjoy doing and that I like doing, I don't get stashed. Yeah. Um, and and because, because, uh, because I don't get stashed, you know the way people would say... Uh, I used to say to you when you were a kid on my shoulders when you'd go to an Ireland football game, You'd say, oh, I want to get Shane Gibbons' autograph. And I'd say, no, I want to get in a position where Shane Gibbons wants mine. <laughs> you know, you yeah. know what I mean? So don't get, don't get starstruck like that. But, but now life, life's been good. I've met some amazing, wonderful people. I've visited some fantastic places.
places. And I've got lifelong memories, lifelong friends, and there's be absolutely, no matter what happens in my life, there will be absolutely no regrets. Yeah, Other than having this yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's brilliant, and to have experienced like a lot of the stuff you've spoken so passionately about, which is such as skydiving, flying, um, and and everything along those lines, it's it's been really really good from this point of view as well. So to hear you actually talk about it has been really good. But thank you so much for coming on, Dad. Uh, for listeners, anyone who's who's likes this or wants to hear previous episodes, please like, share, uh, and and give us a a subscribe. And um, yeah, Dad, I'll talk to you soon. Cheers, son. Chat to you later. Bye bye.